Today we'll be discussing the late Norman Lear, and we'll be discussing death by natural causes. What does it mean? This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, Ali and I will be discussing the career of the late Norman Lear. Now, Lear died of, quote, natural causes, quote. And in our second half, we'll be discussing what that term actually means. So, Ali, let's get right into this discussion about Norman Lear, the acclaimed writer and creator of many, many television hits, especially in the 1970s. I thought maybe we'd talk about Norman Lear. Let's maybe just start with his background, if that's okay, and then we can talk about some of the seminal shows he had made in the 1970s. Yeah, I'm glad you used the word seminal. He's not just a guy who produced TV shows, right? It's like we're talking about him because the mm-hmm. type of shows he made were, I think, groundbreaking gets thrown around, you know, pioneering gets thrown around. But this is an OG. This guy is like truly something. And it helps that he died. I don't want to laugh at his death. I, God love this man. And if there's a heaven, God reward this man for everything he's done. However, he died at 101, which means he was 51 years old in 1971. I mean, I can't help but imagine with the benefit of that age, right? Being 50 and at that age starting to create this, I think that helps, right? You're not, you're no longer at an age where you're like, I got to kiss up to the older guys, got to kiss up to the bosses and I got to prove myself and I'll just say yes to whatever. You're like, no, let's try this. Let's try this. I, I, I think this can work and this is important. And, you know, so I think his age really factors into the quality of stuff that he put out. Yeah, I think he knew what he wanted to do and what he wanted to make, and then he did it. So, Like you at age 25, basically, also. (laughs) Give me a break. Since the beginning. Disagree, but let's get back to Norman Lear. So, interestingly, he grew up in a lot of different places, but mainly in Chelsea, Massachusetts. His dad then, when Norman was nine years old, went to prison for selling fake bonds, which I didn't even know was a thing you could A, do, and then B, go to prison for. And Norman Lear thought of his father, I think the most uncruel thing he said about his father was that his father was a, quote, rascal, end quote. And, you know, he did say later on that Archie Bunker was in part based on his father and Edith was in part inspired by his mother. And you can see this, and we'll get to Archie Bunker in a second, but... Norman Lear says he cannot overstate how much he loved his father, despite knowing his father's shortcomings. And so we can't make him a villain. Like, he could never do that. And then you see, this is actually, I don't know in terms of the uh, racism and the cantankerous nature of Archie Bunker, how much that played into his father. But the fact that it wasn't just a character you could hate because people still did love Archie Bunker. And that's, mm. so we'll just do that as a little teaser for our conversation about Archie Bunker and these sitcoms, like all in the family later on. But then Norman Lear joined the Air Force in 1942. He was part of a bomber squadron. He 
bombed Germany. During the war, he flew 52 combat missions, received the Air Medal with a four oak leaf cluster, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds very impressive. Hmm. I can't help you. I think it sounds impressive too, and that's where I got to leave that. I guess after the war, he moved to Los Angeles, and he had a cousin named Elaine, who was married to a comedy writer, an aspiring comedy writer named Ed Simmons. And so they teamed up at first, selling home furnishings door-to-door, and then sold family photos door-to-door. You know, again, I can remember when people used to do stuff like that back when we were growing up. Vacuums, encyclopedias. Door-to-door salesmen. And then, basically, because Simmons was an aspiring writer, they would do comedy sketches together and, and write them, and then they would submit them, and then they eventually got on Rowan and Martin and Martin Lewis and the Colgate Comedy Hour. And, you know... Comedy Hour, by the way, sorry to interrupt you there, Asif. That was a big deal. And it wasn't named the Colgate Comedy Hour because it was in a city of Colgate, Massachusetts or something. It was heavily sponsored by Colgate. And these guys were making some serious money back then, like 50 grand a piece to work on this show, which is like, you know, probably $500,000 these days. Mm-hmm. They were, it was like well-sponsored, well-watched and well-respected comedy. So they were kind of thrust into the limelight as far as comedy writing goes pretty early on. Again, they were probably in their forties, but early on in their comedy careers. Mm-hmm. And then I guess with the success he wanted to branch out into sitcoms. And so he watched kind of a show that was similar to All in the Family, which was a British show, and he decided to adapt it for American audiences. So he thought he'd do about a blue-collar American family, and he taped two pilots, one in 1968 and one in 1969. The one in 1968 was called Justice for All. The one in 69 was called Those Were the Days. Okay, so that's sounding familiar because that's part of the theme song to All in the Family. And then Mm. those weren't picked up. And then finally he did a third pilot, which was All in the Family, which was picked up. Yeah, he had to fight quite a bit to get this show on the air. This was not an easy sell, is what you get to learn about this, this show. Which, you know, if you watch the show, you could understand. I mean, you could see in a boardroom of executives bunch of them saying like, this is going to offend our viewers. Mm -hmm, This is going to bother people. Mm -hmm. But Norman Lear, I think, fought for the truth, fought for, you know, relatability, fought to showcase issues like racism and homophobia and sexism and, you know, whatever else. Then these weren't like just the cause du jour, right? This is like, again, just to give you an idea, like when Joan Rivers was pregnant during this time on stage in late 60s, 70s, she could not mention her pregnancy. It's too intimate mm-hmm. or, or maybe, you know, vulgar for audiences for his, yeah, I'm pregnant. I, this, that. Like that would, you know, make people think of like sex. I mean, this is like a really, really conservative time. And he was pushing against that tide with everything that he was working on. And interestingly, didn't do very well when it first came out, though it won a lot of Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Comedy Series that year. It didn't do well in in numbers of viewers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, in ratings. But then it did well in summer reruns. So this is something that people don't really remember, maybe, that reruns occur mainly in the summertime. Now you can just watch any show whenever you feel like it. And new shows come on in the summer all the time. Like, people don't really adhere to the fall premiere schedule and then the end of series or in May. Like, we don't really Mm -hmm. adhere to that anymore. 
And so summertime was a time for people to catch up on shows that perhaps missed. Because if you guys recall, back in the day before VCRs, if you missed an episode of a show, you'd never see it again. Like, when would you ever You're see it? Screwed. And you would pray that it would come on during a summer rerun so you could see it again. Yeah. And some a lot of shows became popular with summer reruns or with summer episodes. Beverly Hills 90210 is a classic example where it was not a big hit when it first came out. And then with reruns in the summer, and then they developed some new episodes that came out in the summer, it became the hit that it was. So, okay, but getting back to this, with the reruns, it then became one of the number one shows on television. And I think for the next five years, it was the number one show on television. So Mm. it was a huge hit. At one point during its peak, 50 to 60 million people watched every night. Like, it's unbelievable, these numbers. Asif, I'm sure you'll share this NPR article that's basically an obit for Norman Lear. But there's a quote from a a scholar of, you know, television racial representation, Daryl Hunt. And he says, in the 70s, TV shows, the plot lines were, ah, I burnt the pot roast. What are we going to have for dinner? Like that was what you were dealing with. And all in the family could not have been more different than that. Like the issues that were being addressed were massive, massively like polarizing, compelling stuff to be. And he, you know, his whole thing was also, he believed that you have to make something funny, but also you have to get people to care. And when they care about something, if Mm -hmm. something really matters, they will laugh more. And I don't know if that's still the case, but I I like that. I like that theory quite a bit. And I, I, I want that to be true. At some level, I do believe that too. And even more, the same person you're talking about, Hunt, was saying that Norman Lear specifically took issues that you couldn't resolve that are Mm. at the heart of America, which deal with inequality and struggle. So if it was homophobia, sexism, racism, these things, there are no easy solutions. And that's the point. And so Norman Lear kind of confronted these things head on. It really was amazing. I have always thought about this one one thing when it came to Archie Bunker. You know, in stand-up comedy, Sometimes you're poking fun at yourself or, you know, let's say it's a gay comic on stage making fun of their homosexuality. And then there's a certain type of laugh in the audience that makes you feel uncomfortable all of a sudden. And it's like, oh, they're not laughing at the part that I'm trying to create. They're laughing at some other part. You know, I've done that as Mm. poking fun of myself as a, my predicaments, various predicaments as a, as a Muslim and this, and somebody like, "Ah, yeah, and you go, what kind of laugh was that? Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. and I couldn't help but wonder how many people were watching Archie Bunker and going, yeah, I love this Archie Bunker guy. He he knows what's up. He's a good dude. So, you know, I, you know, it's, I always wondered how many people is he getting who are like, I like Archie. He makes sense. And I'm pretty sure Norman Lear was like, "Mm, that's not what I was going for here. But anyway. Yeah, no, I I hear you. And I'm not sure exactly how many people would be identifying with Archie Bunker or whereas some were laughing at him. I mean, certainly we we know what Norman Lear's perspective was. He was extremely left-wing. And you could see that with some of these spin-off shows that happened afterwards. So it's funny how there's kind of like this genealogy of how these work. And Norman Lear was a Johnny spinoff. I didn't even realize it, yeah. to be honest. Because yeah. Edith's cousin was Maude, so she was spun off into her own show, ran from 72 to 78. Again, she was 
so much of a left-wing person compared to Archie Bunker on the far, far right. And they mm. dealt with alcoholism, pot smoking, abortion. Abortion was like a huge episode, a two-part episode, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was Maude herself who had, an, I mean, that's crazy. It's one thing to be like, you know, my sister, some, some unnamed, mm. unexplored character is getting an abortion. But now it's the person that, you know, America is watching and connecting with is getting an award. I mean, that's, there's got to be people by the tens of thousands who are like, nope, not watching this episode. Mm -hmm. I, uh, this is too far, right? This, the, yeah, that's the type of television he was making. And the fact that he was able to do that, Norman Lear, is amazing. Now, of course, my editorial, you know, I saw Maud in reruns in the 80s, and then there's Maud, right? And then I, I remember thinking to myself, because I watched Maud reruns the same time that The Golden Girls was on. So I just kind of assumed B. Arthur was the same age in The Golden Girls as she was in Maud. So I'm like, what? She's old enough to still get pregnant and then have an abortion? I didn't quite understand what was going on. Like, when I saw B. Arthur on Golden Girls, and then I think Sophia was her mother, you know, I was like, yeah. what? She's old enough to have a mother who's still alive? That's <laughs> uh, terrible. Anyway, that's the, we can save that more of those anecdotes for our Golden Girls episode, which I'm sure is going to be coming up yeah. eventually. So then after Maude, he made The Jeffersons, which of course, George Jefferson, played by Sherman Hemsley, ran this dry cleaning business in Archie's neighborhood and whose disdain for white people rivaled Bunker's disdain for black people, right? Yeah. And of course, you know, these are nouveau rich people, the Jeffersons, moving on up, as they always say, to the east side. Uh, Maude had a housekeeper also, buddy, and her family became the show Good Times. That's right. Dynamite. <laughs> That's right. Some people get Legit. that reference. Some people don't. Tell I barely Walker. get it myself. Right. Yeah. So we had all these. I mean, these shows I loved. I didn't watch Good Times as much. I saw a few in, uh, episodes and reruns. Jefferson's I watched all the time. Sure. But I bring up Good Times because this is an interesting perspective, right? He Good Times was a, a, about a black family. So right away, you've got a show centered around a black family. That's that's something mm -hmm. for a white man to be making that show. Mm -hmm. And they are struggling with poverty. Right, right. Unlike the other shows. And then the Jeffersons yes. came afterwards yeah. and they're struggling with wealth. They're not struggling. They were having a great time with wealth. Mm -hmm. But, you know, experiencing everything that comes with being a, a rich black family and all the assumptions people make about why that can't be possible or wouldn't be possible. How many times, you know, George Jefferson was mistaken for some sort of, I don't know, butler or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can see how these shows reflect Norman Lear's left-wing views and his activism, right? And he, it's interesting when you read some interviews with him, he talks about when he was young, he would listen to the radio and he heard this Catholic priest named Charles Coughlin and who was anti-Semitic, like clearly anti-Semitic. And he would hear these sermons and he just, you know, he, he realized this idea of right-wing racism and he kind of, you know, put him on this direction to fight against this. In fact, this sermon, this guy doing these sermons would even criticize people like Franklin Roosevelt, right? And other Jewish people who are considered great heroes. So the fact that he could hear this on the radio. So in a media kind of message, he's hearing these things. I think it really affected Lear. I mean, he, he says that. And so he, you can see that in his work, in his sitcoms. Then in the 1980s, he founded an organization called People for the American Way, whose purpose was to counteract 
the moral majority. If people remember mm. this idea of the moral majority, it was a group, right-wing Christian group, which was all about censorship and, you know, your TV shows, your movies, etc., are, are harming our young people, right? So he wanted to create a group to fight against that. He said publicly he was terrified by the mix of politics and religion that existed mm -hmm. in society. By the 80s, he was saying that he became more of a political activist, probably because of his fear of politics and religion mixing together. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wasn't wrong. It, it is a volatile cocktail. Yeah. And of course, he had the clout by the 80s to actually do something about this. He had the money mm -hmm. and the clout to do, to do this. He also was involved in a bunch of other charities to help raise awareness for voting, encouraging young people to vote. And him and his wife in 2001, interestingly, purchased something called the Dunlap Broadside. Now, this is one of the first published copies of the United States Declaration of Independence. Only about 200 of these were made shortly after the declaration was signed. So they purchased one of these for about $8 million. And of course, he didn't just keep it in his house. He toured it around. And at various events, sporting events, etc., he would bring it and have it on display so people could take a look at it. So again, something that you don't have to do, but he felt, you know, as part of being a patriot, a veteran, that he wanted to do something like this. Oh yeah. Through all of this, you forget that he's a veteran. Yeah. He's also a veteran. He also went to war. I mean, the perspective that this man had yeah. by the time he was, you know, in his sixties, seventies was pretty rich. And so, you know, he also was, by the way, involved in the creation of different strokes in the 80s, and that, of course, beget the facts of life. So even going into the 80s, he was responsible for a lot of seminal sitcoms, using that word again. So, Ali, to wrap things up, what do you feel are the contributions and the legacy of Norman Lear? Well, he gave us Valerie Bertinelli in One Day at a Time. She helped me become a man. Know what I mean? Normally, I would have been jealous of anybody that Valerie Bertinelli hooked up with, but... I forgot that she was in One Day at a Time. What the... What are you saying right now? Sorry, you were going to say Valerie Bertinelli hooked up with Eddie Van Halen. With who? Eddie, Eddie Van, Van Halen. Halen. Yeah. And then you have to... I mean, one of the absolute, you know, greatest guitarists and one of the sexiest men alive for many years. Even as a young boy. I recognized a sexy man when I saw one. Uh, so he gave us Valerie. He gave yeah. me Valerie. How could we forget one day at a time? I can't believe I didn't mention that because there was also a reboot several years ago, a critically acclaimed reboot on Netflix. Yeah. I love that show. We Loved also Schneider. didn't mention Sanford. Oh, Sanford and Son. Yeah, buddy, he's, this man's done a lot of work. Yeah. We just had to pick the big ones. But if you go to his Wikipedia page, there's a section called TV Productions, and it is... I mean, you also get to see how many things he pitched that didn't go anywhere mm -hmm. or that, you know, we probably should have known about, but like, you know, we don't. This man worked very, very hard right up until the mid 2000s, you know, the early 2000s. So what do you say, Ali, then to people who are like, you know, these shows could never be made today? Yeah, that's an interesting, I mean, you know, hearing Mindy Kaling, unrelated to Norman Lear, talking about The Office and saying that this show could never be made today. And I, you know, it's with Terry Gross, longtime fantastic interviewer on a show called Fresh Air. And Terry Gross was like, really? You don't think The Office could be made today? This is a conversation from a couple of years ago. And she said, no. And I think she summed it up nicely, Mindy Kaling, it's something that we can apply to Archie Bunker, which is Mindy Kaling picked out 
one of the many inappropriate jokes that Michael Scott made on The Office. And one of it was, okay, so Oscar, you are Mexican-American. Is there a less offensive term that you would prefer that we call you, right? So right away, either you're laughing or you're not, but that is a very funny joke because Michael Scott is such an imbecile. Mm -hmm. You're like, Jesus Christ, man. What is wrong? You know, it's like makes you uncomfortable, makes you laugh at the same time. But if that is a joke that means your show cannot be made today, Archie Bunker said a thousand things way worse than that. And he he didn't say it because he was an imbecile. He said it because he was an opinionated, sort of self-righteous man. And so I think somewhere along the way, we have lost that appreciation of that type of satire where people understand, oh, this is a person mm -hmm. playing a character. These characters exist, mm -hmm. right? These are actual mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. We all have a racist uncle or aunt somewhere. I mean, you can't bury your head in the sand on mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. We all have somebody who makes some homophobic comment either indirectly or proudly. And it, it's unfortunate. I agree that these shows can't be made today. And I think that we're poorer for it that we can't even appreciate that these people exist and we're showing them. And it's a similar thing to, you know, when Kim's Convenience came out, everybody had a knee-jerk reaction about like, oh, Paul Sun Young Lee is doing an accent. He's doing an accent. Oh, I can't believe they're doing an accent. And it's like Paul himself had to say, and we've talked about this on this podcast, Paul had to be like, hey, people with accents exist. And it's actually a value for us to show mm -hmm. these people who are, you know, likely very intelligent people in their own country and people understood them and they probably got respect. And then they come here and then they struggle with language and now they're made to feel dumb, right? Applying that to Archie Bunker, no language barrier, but you know, the world is changing around him. And he's like, I don't understand. Everybody I knew agreed that the blacks don't belong in ABC and the gays are just AB, you know, whatever variety of you know, horrible things he was saying. I think it's such great fodder for conversation and it's so real, but I think everybody, you know, we're all worried about offending others and right. getting offended. Agreed. And so two things about that. One is the problem is if they made this show today, you know who they want to cancel? They want to cancel Carol O'Connor. Carol O'Connor, one of the greatest actors in sitcom history. Mm -hmm. They want to cancel him. Can you believe he said that stuff? He didn't say it. He was playing a character who was saying this, but people do, would just conflate this and they want to cancel Carol Connor. That's ridiculous. So people have to understand, as you said, that they're playing a character. I think the bigger point is that people need to have the courage, people being the creators and networks that Norman Lear did, and to their credit, CBS did when they put this on the air, to say that we know there's going to be a minority of people who actually identify with these characters and think that they're actually, you know, have a point, right? Yeah. That's okay, because the greater good is going to come about by bringing up these topics, talking about them, and poking fun at these, you know, people who have these types of viewpoints, right? I totally. And that's it. So I, I think if we could all be more like Norman Lear, and especially the creatives in the entertainment business, I think the world would be a lot better place. Absolutely. And if they had canceled Carol O'Connor, we would have never got Asif in the heat of the night, no? Oh yeah, in the heat show? of the night, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know, yeah.
All right, Asif. So as we've been suggesting, this is a strange subject for me to get excited about, but I actually am excited about because died of natural causes is something you just, you don't hear anymore. Mm -hmm. There's a thousand things that'll get you before natural causes, it feels like. Natural causes feels like something that, you know, people in, in those blue zones in Okinawa or Nosara in Costa Rica, feels like that's reserved for them. But to have a man who lived in America, lived to this age, and then just die, I want to know what natural causes means. I also want to know what Norman Lear was eating and drinking every day, but I don't think you have that information. But I want to know, you know, how does this happen? And why is it something that I used to hear more as a child? My mm, grandfather mm. died. Just, yeah. there was nothing. There was no heart attack. There was nothing. He just died in his sleep. And how do we get back to it? How do we get more of it in our life? Huh? Little natural causes. Okay. So this is a, it's a bit about terminology and this death by natural causes is kind of what physicians, especially pathologists, coroners, it's the language they're using to translate medical terms into terms that can be consumed by the average person. Dum-dum? The average dum-dum? <laughs> I didn't say that. So, it was because if you, look, you at <laughs> if you look at the Centers for Disease Control, a natural cause is anything that isn't a non-natural cause of death. So, that sounds like I'm just playing semantics. So, mm -hmm. in other words, a natural cause is a natural disease process. Having an infection, cancer, heart disease, stroke things that people die of naturally. An unnatural cause would be someone who is in a motor vehicle accident, someone who commits suicide, right? Someone who slips and falls in their house and they get a traumatic brain injury because of that and they pass away, right? These are non-natural causes. If you look at overall numbers, we're going to get into specifics in a bit, 90% of people die from these natural causes and about 10% is these non-natural causes. Now, as you were implying, we also have this issue where we use the natural cause term for people who just die of quote unquote old age, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, Norman Leo was 101. He had a full life, as we said, you know, he was in his 50s when he actually started making TV shows, right? Like that's how long of a life he had. He lived a full life and then he made all the family, right? Crazy. It's, it's, Crazy. it's yeah. you know, so. Sometimes when people get older, there's an absence of an overlying disease. So in other words, they don't have active cancer. They don't have active heart disease. But, you know, as we're getting older, you have a general progression and loss of strength, energy, appetite over time. And so, you know, this is just the slow failure of your body as you get older, right? And so you can think of like a car kind of like shutting down after years of use, you know? It's not one thing, but then the car's resting a bit, then the engine stops working over time, right? So your body can just stop working. So essentially, it could be like a multi-organ failure, but over a long period of time, right? It's not that I'm old, I have kidney failure, then I die from that, right? You could just think of, that's often what we mean by that when we say natural causes. So the issue is that when a young person dies, we often try and find out the cause, right? Because we're like, well, why would this person just die all of a sudden? Was it an accident? Did they take something? Did they ingest something? Did they have some sort of disease we didn't know about, right? But when an older person dies, you don't often do an autopsy on them, right, to try and find out. Again, because they're often in their late 80s, 90s, you know, over 100, you just figure, well, the body will fail eventually. So we mm -hmm. don't do autopsy on them. So sometimes it's like the 
best guess in terms of what's going on is we just say they died of natural causes, this death from. And that is something like literally that would be written, those words on somebody's death certificate. Right. That, exactly. that is, yeah. that it, it's medical enough of a term that that's written on a death certificate. Yeah. So that's exactly right. And so I'm going to generalize because death certificates are a bit different depending on where you live, US versus Canada, and even in Canada, the different provinces, they're all slightly different. But yeah, exactly. So a death certificate will say whether the death was natural or not, but it will also go into a bit more. So the other thing you can talk about is the manner of death. So natural, right? Or accident, suicide, homicide, or undetermined, right? But then there's a more involved section, which is the cause of death. Like what you think was the immediate cause of death, what led to the cause of death, and then you can also talk about the underlying condition that led up to it. And of course, how long before the person died did they have that disorder? So in a case like Norman Lear, the underlying condition that led to his death is simply old age? Is that what we're saying? We don't know. And in fact, now it's come out that it was actually cardiac arrest that they think was the what? cause of death. But again, I think his physician and the person who did his death certificate thought that Maybe it was just the cumulative effects of these things over time. But I'll give you an example. Okay. So on a death certificate, you could say the manner of death was a natural death. The immediate cause of death was a tear in the heart wall that happened in the minutes before death. And then that tear in the heart wall, you died immediately from that. But the underlying cause that contributed to that could have been a heart attack or heart disease that took place in the days, months, or years before death. Because the heart attack or heart disease could have weakened the heart wall. So that was a predisposing factor, but that led to the eventual tear in the heart wall, and then you died immediately from that, right? So mm. you see how you could say natural cause. Yes, it was a natural cause, but what was the immediate cause? And then you can go further into that as well. So given that somebody dies of natural causes, what are the major causes leading to a natural cause of death? So let's say the US, it would be heart disease, cancer, stroke. Those would be the main things. Sometimes unintentional injuries, not suicide, but like a car accident as well. But the vast majority is heart disease, cancer, etc. And of course, I didn't mention the life expectancy, which you might be interested. The current life expectancy in North America for males and females combined is 76 years, males is 73 years, females is 79 years. Okay. And for the first time in our history, it's gone down by a little bit. Is that right? Did I read that correctly? Correct. That was some data that came out this past year. People don't really know why. Is that a COVID phenomenon or not? I think we're still going to be looking into the reason why that is. But it went down, I think, by like a year. So it's not like, you know, <laughs> you're going to die when you're 52. Yeah. You're differentiating between men and women, but I imagine also where you live plays a part and what kind of lifestyle you have and this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's actually talk about that. Let's talk about high income countries and low income countries. There's also middle income countries, but let's just do the extremes because it helps to paint the picture a bit more. So high income countries, which would include the US and Canada in a lot of Western European countries, number one cause of death. Actually, why why'd you tell me the number one natural Cancer. cause of death? cancer or heart disease heart disease then interestingly alzheimer's and other dementias 
No way. Yeah. Second, second heart disease. And then stroke is third. I'll get into the rest of the list in a second. So that's because of our medical care in high-income countries, because you're able to treat more effectively things like cancer, right? And people overall are living longer, so then they will eventually die from dementia. Because in other countries, you die so early that you don't even have time to get dementia, essentially, right? Sure. sure. Number four is lung cancers. Five is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, what we call COPD, often due to smoking. The six is lower respiratory tract infection, so like a pneumonia. So you're like, well, that doesn't sound that serious, but we're talking about, think about it. You and I get pneumonia, we're probably laid up for a week or two. A child can get pneumonia, have to be on antibiotics for a bit, but bounces back. An elderly person who gets pneumonia... It could be the end, right? So it just depends on your age when you get it. Then colon and rectal cancers, kidney diseases, kidney failure, etc. Hypertensive heart disease, so slightly different. And then diabetes or a complication from diabetes. So that's the top 10 for high-income countries. And out of all those, think about it. The only one that's a communicable disease, so like an infectious disease, is the lower respiratory tract infection pneumonia. And again, we're more worried about that in an elderly person as opposed to a younger person. Okay, so let's look at low-income countries. Number one, I almost don't want to ask you this because it's so sad. Ali, what do you think the number one cause of death in a low-income country is? Pollution. Something lung-related? No, that's a bit later on on the list. No, the number one is neonatal conditions. So newborn conditions oh, causing deaths, which is quite sad. And that is easily, yeah. far and away, the number one cause. So that's quite sad mm-hmm. when we think about it. Infant mortality rates in developing countries. And these are things we just don't think about, right? We're going to get to some other things that people think about. Then... The next is lower respiratory tract infections, so pneumonias. Again, that was like halfway through the list in developed countries, but it accounts for a lot of deaths, so not just in older people. Then heart disease, then stroke. Fifth is diarrheal diseases, so dysentery. This is caused by the lack of clean drinking water. So again, these are like things that we could prevent, but we're not. Another one that we have the ability to prevent is malaria is number six. Oh, wow. Seventh is road injury. Road injury isn't even in the top 10 in high-income countries. And we think about that all the time. Oh, my gosh, car accident. These people die in a car accident. That's how common it is. Eighth is TB, tuberculosis. So you were talking about infection, lung infection. So that's another one that is treatable, that people are still dying of. Nine, you can imagine, especially in a lot of areas of Africa, is HIV and AIDS. Again, didn't even show up in developed countries. And then 10th is cirrhosis of the liver. Again, this could be from other diseases, but it could be from alcoholism as well. When the WHO talked about the global burden of disease from alcohol use, it was looking at all countries, right? We just kind of have a a higher income kind of bias because of where you and I live that we think about, Mm. but we're talking about all countries. You know, we're looking at wealthy countries, developed nations to undeveloped, underdeveloped nations, right? This is what we're doing. But is there not some value in also looking at cities versus rural, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? The stress you have in a city and what that must do to your body, the risks of you know more accidents happening just because there's more people around and that kind of stuff versus like some, you know, goat 
shepherder or something like that. Shepherder? Shepherd. Shepherd yeah, and, and pollution. It's hard because these things balance each other up. Because if you're in a low-income country, in a rural area, you're going to have less access to everything, right? So less access to medicines, hospitals, etc. And of course, there's a chasm between the wealthiest person in a low-income country and the poorest person, right? Yeah. Compared to other countries. Because essentially, a lot of these countries lack a middle class, whereas that's not the case in high-income countries. So I think these all need to be factored in. Hmm. Also, I said goat shepherd. I believe shepherd comes from the word sheep herder, so you can't be a goat sheep herder. It's a, you know, yeah, we need something to fact check that. <laughs> yeah. So that's our episode for today. Let us know what you guys thought. Any other memories about Norman Lear and the great shows that he did. One thing I forgot to mention, Ali, is Norman Lear and Jimmy Kimmel did these specials called Live in Front of a Studio Audience, where they took modern actors and they did episodes of All in the Family, Jefferson's, Good Times, Different Strokes, Facts of Life. So oh, it's quite kidding. fun. I yeah. I don't know about this at all. Kevin Hart plays Arnold in Different Strokes, for example. <laughs> so, oh, that's yeah. very funny. And so oh it's great. Woody Harrelson plays Archie Bunker. So it's great. So if you could follow oh, us I online. I hear about yeah. him playing that. I didn't know what that was for. And that's on YouTube. You can find yeah, that. Yeah, you can find them. They're a bit hard to find, but you, you can locate them. At least you can find some clips on them. They're really good. Jennifer Hudson, the actress and amazing singer, does the theme for the Jeffersons. That you can find on YouTube. She is so mm -hmm. good. And it makes you realize that is one of the top themes in all of television history. It's so we good. Moving on up. It's yeah, the that best. That's pretty good, Ali. Not bad. <laughs> also, let us know what you guys thought about this idea of death by natural causes. A bit of a different topic for us from the medicine topic because it really is something that's used. Like I said, it's it's a term that we use in medicine to kind of translate info to the average person. So let us know if there's any other questions similar to that you guys have for us. Dr. V Comedian at gmail.com. Dr. V Comedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are everywhere. Ali, anything you got going on in the new year we are in january yeah. now i am going to go to cincinnati i'm going to be part of the moth in cincinnati I, if you know the moth storytelling is something yeah. i've been just a huge fan of since i was a teenager just sitting in my driveway not able to turn off the car because i'm listening to this incredible storytelling so i was honored to be sort of scouted for this. It was going to be in Toronto in September. I couldn't do it then. So they're like, how about a double header in Cincinnati? So in February, I believe 9th, 10th, I'll have to look up the dates, but in Cincinnati, the moth, I will be there two nights in a row. And then I'll be doing a lot of reading, Asif. Sometimes when you're talking about something, you might see me reading here in our little Zoom chat, because that's how much reading I have to do. Because Canada Reads is coming up. People know literature, they like a competition, they will or already probably know about Canada Reads and, and hopefully enjoy it. And that's coming up the first week of March. Wow. Okay. Coming up soon. By the way, for the month, is this based on your book? Are you doing readings from your book? Are you hosting? Are you doing... What, it, is what is it something from my book. And then I, you know, I add some more to it that's not in the book. What I mean to say is that there's no reading. You just deliver the story. So it's sort of a more 
in the moment storytelling. Like not spoken just word, kind of. Spoken word sort yeah. of thing, yeah. I don't, see, Ali and I don't talk outside of this podcast, so I really have no idea what's going on. So yeah, that's good. That's very interesting. Now remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.